Hello, and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Duke Oaks. Duke is the owner and knowledge architect at Applemet, specializing in quality management. He's been in private practice since 1985, working with organizations in the U.S. and abroad. He was formerly a quality professional in TRW's automotive sector. Duke has been elected fellow of the American Society for Quality and is certified by ASQ as a manager of quality and organizational excellence, quality engineer and quality auditor. He's taught review courses for ASQ's CMQOE, CQA, CQT, and CQIA certifications. And he's the developer and primary instructor for the root cause analysis and measuring organizational process improvement courses offered by ASQ's Learning Institute. Duke holds undergraduate degrees in technology and business, a master's degree in adult education, and has completed doctoral coursework in applied management and decision sciences. He has served as an adjunct university faculty member teaching statistics and management research. He's the author of two books, Root Cause Analysis, The Core of Problem Solving and Corrective Action, and Performance Metrics, The Levers for Process Management. He's also the co-editor of the Certified Quality Manager Handbook, which is now in its second edition. And he's written numerous articles for publications such as Quality Progress, Quality World, Business Improvement Journal, Apex, The Performance Advantage, Manufacturing Engineering, the Auditor and Quality Management Forum. Duke is a frequent speaker for professional and trade org audiences at the local, regional, national, and international levels. He conducts public seminars for a variety of professional societies, training organizations, and universities, and has served as an examiner for the, for the Tennessee Performance Excellence Award. Duke, welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Tim. And uh, sounds like a lot of the uh, introductory information came from my website. If I'd known you were going to use that, I might have added a little more pizzazz to it. <laughs> no, it's it's very complete and very impressive. Uh, you've got a great background in quality and reliability, uh, not just in your own work, but uh, the training that you provided as well. You know, Duke, you've conducted over 400 workshops on root cause analysis at a variety of different businesses and organizations. Root cause analysis is such a basic principle of Six Sigma thinking, and yet a lot of folks seem to have trouble doing it correctly. What, what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen, and where can we improve? Oh, boy. Uh, I could go on forever on this one. Um, as a matter of fact, last night I was looking through a presentation I had done several years ago called The Barriers to Effective Root Cause Analysis. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me a lot of the things that I see, you still see after, you know, all these years. Um, I guess since you mentioned Six Sigma, one of the things I'll, I'll state up front is that I think people sometimes don't realize that Six Sigma and Root Cause Analysis, although they are interrelated, they're also uh, different in some ways in that Six Sigma is often used for process improvement rather than for problem solving. 
And with process improvement, we're dealing with a situation where there's many possible things that we could change to make things better. While with root cause analysis, there are a small number of specific causes that we have to find and address. So it's like process improvement is more of a, of a broad, uh, almost creative type of, of problem solving process where root cause analysis is a much more analytical uh, process and, and so, more focused. Yeah, I see. Your yes, point. absolutely. Uh huh. So, so one is maybe using a uh, a magnifying glass to try to look at the entire process and find opportunities, whereas uh, root cause analysis is more like using a microscope and and digging down into the micro level of the uh, of the processes. Duke, where do people go wrong with root cause analysis? Why is it so hard? Well. Um, I guess one of the reasons is that many organizations don't actually have a structured process that they use. Um, they, if they do, it's maybe something like 8D or A3, which are both excellent guidelines, but they don't give you very much detail on how to actually find the cause itself. And that's, mm. that's where my course really focuses. And, and it's based on uh, troubleshooting that I used to do in electronics and hydraulics. Uh, and I just took what I'd learned from that and sort of changed the language to make it more quality or process specific. Uh, so it's basically a course in troubleshooting. So it's, it's how to look at a system, how to identify possible causes, and then how to uh, collect evidence or data that helps us test each of those causes. And many of the models such as 8D will say, you know, define the problem identify possible causes and then find the root cause. Well, finding the root cause is the hardest part. Sure. Uh, it takes a lot of work. And as a matter of fact, just the data collection process is very often the most time consuming portion of it. You know, Duke, one of the things that I've seen with root cause analysis is that um, people are sometimes reluctant to spend the time that's required to do a good job, you know, because they're, they're rushed. They're in a maybe a production environment and uh, everybody wants to get the production line up and running again? You're, you're right. And, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is they do just want to get it up and running. And once it's up and running, they sort of say, okay, we're done. You know, we were successful and they don't realize right. the root, that what they've done is to correct the problem. They've not actually done corrective action. Hmm. And so we need to realize the root cause analysis is not something you would typically do uh, while the equipment is down or while the process is, is defective, but after it, uh, it's sort of a parallel activity that, that should go on. Interesting. Um, yeah. The second thing is very often I find that uh, people don't understand the amount of time that it does take to do root cause analysis. And so, mm. you know, you get this, uh, this mandate that uh, you have 24 hours to find the root call. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not realistic in many of the situations that I've uh, been exposed to. No, I think you're right. I, I think putting a, a t time box, I guess, on the uh, the analysis uh, is pretty un unrealistic. I mean, that, that suggests that this really, you know, is a pretty easy to solve problem. And right. as we know, um, it can be a lot more complicated than that. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think we're all kind of conditioned to uh, to believe that uh, quality begins with good product design and good process d design. And 
that's where we use techniques like failure modes analysis. I know you mentioned PFMEA a lot in your newsletters on your website. Can you help us understand why you think PFMEA is important and, and what are some tips for doing effective PFMEA? Well, I have a bias here. I've looked, I've studied risk management for quite a few years now. Uh, I've done assessments of risk management in organizations. And I've come to the conclusion that although uh, FMEAs are not applicable to every situation, of all the tools out there for doing a risk assessment, uh, they are sort of the most comprehensive because mm-hmm. it has you do the assessment of the risks related to the failures as well as the chance of detection. It has you look at, uh, you know, scoring each of those factors, has you coming up with uh, or evaluating the controls that you currently have in place, mm-hmm. and as well as uh, might you need to add some controls. So it really, if you look at uh, risk management in the sense of, let's say, ISO 31000, the process uh, will find that the um, the FMEA really sort of is walking you through uh, most of those steps. Now, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't include the broader organizational issues and so on, but uh, it, it really just has inherently built into it those basic steps required for uh, good risk assessment and, and management. So where do people have trouble with FMEA analysis? Do you have any suggestions on how we can do, we can um, execute this process better? Um, one of the things I discovered recently during a course, and, you know, every time you, you do a course, you learn something new. And although I've done FMEAs sure. for several years, uh, maybe it's just the particular organization I was in. It was medical devices. Mm-hmm. But I found that the typical FMEA process FMEA, which is where I've spent most of my time, has you looking at what are the characteristics of the product or service and how can we mail to, to fail to meet those specific characteristics or mm. specifications. And so I realized that that's only one way of coming up with uh, failure modes because there are other things that can go wrong in the process that might have an impact on how the product or service functions that are not necessarily explicitly spelled out in the in the requirements. Interesting. So, uh, so I, I came up with, I think it was three different ways for uh, identifying the, the failure modes. One would be what I just mentioned, the specific requirements that have been set that uh, weren't met. Right. The second one is what are some events or some actions that might occur that uh, could create a problem. And so mm-hmm. there it might be that somebody issues the wrong raw material or the wrong tool to ah. the process, which typically would not come up in a, uh, an FMEA where you're just based on requirements. Right. Because we have assumed that all the previous steps have been done correctly. But issuing uh, tooling, for example, is not actually a previous step hmm. uh, that would be part of the flowchart for the FMEA. Good point. And then another way to do it would be just say, well, what are the major uh, effects that we want to avoid? So a patient being injured, for example, by a, uh, a device. And so at this particular step of the process, what are anything that we can think of that might impact how the device functions and, and uh, might cause that major effect? So I think like any tool, Tim, there's, <laughs> there's the way that it's uh, designed to be used. 
but then there are other ways that we can find to adapt it that can expand it. Uh, and so that's one of the one of the tips is how you're going to actually identify what the failure modes are at each step of the process. You know, Duke, it really sounds like what you're advocating for is it basically expanding the boundaries when you look at a process, not just looking, you know, at the inputs and outputs for the immediate process, but kind of taking into consideration how the process fits into the overall um, system, the value delivery. That's a good point, because I, I remember during this particular course mentioning that, you know, if I were uh, HP, uh, that, uh, you know, makes a lot of uh, cartridges for their uh, laser printers. Right. Uh, and I'm doing an FMEA on the manufacturing of those cartridges. I might even need to consider what's the impact of a failure mode at this particular uh, step of the process mm-hmm. on the ability to recycle that cartridge. Oh, right. So, you know, that goes way beyond the user, if you will, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so So I think we need to do sort of a full uh, life cycle uh, flow chart first and then say, okay, now how much of this life cycle are we going to consider as part of our uh, FMEA? Good, good. You know, Duke, there's been a lot of interest recently in risk-based planning since the release of the new ISO 9001 uh, 2015 standard. Can you give our listeners some insight about some of these new requirements and what it might mean for their business? You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about that on LinkedIn yeah. and Ellsmar Cove and so on. And you know, so some people are proposing that you need a formal risk management process, even though it doesn't require it. Others are saying you don't need to do anything differently. And I sort of, as you might expect, am somewhere in the middle, saying, well, it depends. <laughs> uh, and I think the best way, or the easiest way for me to think about it, I even developed a diagram to help people understand this is it's all about plan, do, check, act. I mean, you mm. know, if you think about ISO 9000, it pays, basically is PDCA, right? I think sure. like the first sections four, five, six, I believe, are the planning. Section seven is the doing, eight is checking, and nine is sort of, I've left mm-hmm. one out there. Anyway, so it's basically PDCA. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's how we're managing our processes. So what I think about is risk-based thinking, if you tie it to the PDCA cycle, it gets a whole lot easier to understand what you might need to do. Hmm. And so when you're developing, or sorry, when you are planning a new product or a new process, or it's a new project, or you're changing a product or a process or a project, you need to do some sort of consideration of risk. You need to say, okay, this particular thing that I'm developing or changing, what are the chances that if I make uh, this change, it's going to impact uh, my organizational objectives, which or my quality objectives, which right. obviously are things like customer satisfaction, product performance, and reliability, and so on. And if, for example, I say, well, the particular change I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to change the design of this form that we use to to record our training records. I don't, for the most part, see much connection there. So I'm not Hmm. going to do any formal risk assessment. But if I say, well, you know, the change I'm getting ready to make could impact, uh, let's say, cost of quality or reliability, then I probably should do some level of risk assessment. Hmm. But how uh, rigorous that is will depend upon the industry I'm in, uh, the significance of the change, and so on. And so I might use something simple, such as just brainstorming or 
cause and effect diagram to do right. a risk assessment. If, if it's a, you know, I think it's going to have an impact, but not likely to be huge. But if I'm in a medical device situation or automotive situation, or, or I think the change could be relatively significant, then I'm probably going to use a fault tree analysis sure. or FMEA or whatever. So it's, it's, it's thinking about risk during the planning portion and saying, do I need to do a risk assessment? Yes or no. If yes, then do one. If no, then you've decided you don't need to. Then the doing aspect of uh, risk-based thinking is obviously implementation of the controls that we've put in place. Right. The checking then says, okay, so when I'm looking at performance metrics, when I'm looking at product uh, inspection test results, when I'm looking at audit findings and so on, are the deviations that I see significant? If it's a minor issue, so the example I use all the time in my training is suppose that I forget to sign off on the sheet that indicates that people are in the training course. You know, that's probably not really critical uh, unless I'm certifying welders that are working on aircraft (laughs) carriers or something. (laughs) Okay. So so in that case, yes, it's a deviation, but it probably doesn't warrant putting a lot of energy into trying to figure out why the deviation occurred. Just say, here, Duke, we'd like you to sign this. You know, fax it to me and I'll sign it. So the same thought process occurs during the check portion is how significant is this variance that I've found? If it's not significant, then don't, don't worry about it. Just correct the mm. problem. If it needs to be corrected, move on. If it's a, a significant deviation, uh, then we need to ask ourselves, okay, was that deviation because the controls that we had in place were not actually being used or they were in place, but they're not effective and then doing some sort of root cause analysis on that you know Um, go ahead i'm sorry everything you described i mean it reminds me again of fmea and and tfmea (laughs) you know i mean this this, it really comes back to the the use of our tool right yeah absolutely it does yes so so the idea is that if we've done that ahead of time then Mm -hmm. you know we will have had the controls in place we would have thought about the uh risks to those controls not working and so on Interesting. You know, I, I, th- I think a lot of us who are trained in quality and reliability, we're used to thinking in terms of probability, you know, and statistics. I, I, I'm not sure if everybody is uh, really thinks a lot about severity or impact um, as much as they do about probability. You know, you're, you may be right. And I just read a, uh, an article from, uh, oh, CIO magazine, I think mm-hmm. it was in which they talk about <clears throat> that impact is actually the, the thing you need to worry about the most in the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, it's getting greater and greater as our systems get more and more complex. Sure. But by definition, there's not much you can do about the impact mm-hmm. uh, if that's the design of your system. So what you have to do is to reduce the probability Good. to where it is, uh, you know, uh, actually insignificant. Now, I you know, I haven't thought that through. A whole lot, but I did find it an interesting way to look at it. Mm. Is that uh, you know it's those combinations of, t- of those two that actually creates the risk, and we need to be thinking about can we can we work on both of those? Sure. Uh, or or do we only have control over one of them? You know, Duke. When we talked last month, you, you said something really interesting that I like. You told me that reliability management is about the reliability of the product while risk management is about the reliability of the organization or the business. Can you, can you explain to our listeners what you meant by that? 
Well, not everyone would agree, would agree with that, and, and partially because uh, it, 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 again, depends on your environment. So if you're in the uh, medical device industry, the term risk management there is very much about management of life cycle risk of the product. Sure. Uh, and they may or may not consider what we would consider enterprise risk management, ERM. Hmm. And that's what I'm really getting at is that if we look at the layers, if you will, or levels of risk management, so I have a hierarchy I use, for example, in which uh, at the bottom is risk-based thinking, uh, above that is risk management, above that is operational risk management, and then at the higher level or the highest level is enterprise risk management. So it says, you know, basically what's the scope of what, what we're applying uh, risk-based thinking or risk management to? And my view is that enterprise risk management, which is where a lot of organizations are focused these days, is really about trying to make sure that the organization is going to be sustainable for the long term. Uh, and that obviously requires, uh, you know, risk management to be applied in many different areas at, at, at every level, if you will, Interesting. of the organization. Yeah, you know, we talk about uh, robustness in product design or process design. I, I think what you're really referring to is the organization itself robust, you know, is the organization or the business capable of reliably uh, delivering results? Absolutely. And, and in some ways, this goes back to uh, an earlier question about root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. The real root cause for many situations that I run into <clears throat> is what I call management. Mm. Now, De Deming would have loved that, you know. So, <laughs> so while yes. most people are familiar with the four M's or the five M's, maybe the six M's, I have seven M's. So I use manpower, methods, materials, uh, Mother Earth, measurement, and management. Wow. <laughs> I think I got them all. Anyway, yeah. um, and by management, here's what I'm talking about. The culture of the organization, yes. for example. Uh, there are many situations that if things had gone wrong and the culture of the organization is one in which people are risk aware and accountable, that that risk would not have propagated at the level that it did. I agree. Um, and so if we have a culture that is not tuned in to risk and, and reliability and so on, then by definition, we're more likely to have weak systems. Um, other management issues are things like incentive systems. So mm -hmm. you're probably familiar with the, uh, the VA center in Phoenix where they were skewing some performance metrics to mm. ensure that the managers uh, got bonuses. Right. Uh, and it indicated that veterans were being seen within 14 days who actually mm. were not. Well, that so in that organization, they had an incentive system that calls people to change their behavior in such a way that it would benefit them personally and they right. weren't caring about so so you know incentive systems policies it's it's unbelievable the number of times that we find that an organization has a policy in place that has the best intent but actually conflicts with the need to be able to carry out certain activities that need to be carried out uh, so, so sure. I'll give you a real, a real simple example. Mm -hmm. uh, an organization had a policy that if you're going to hold a classroom training event, there has to be at least eight people in the room. You know, they don't want to have, <laughs> they, they don't want to have three people there and be. I think I see where and, Duke. I think I see where this is going. Yeah, that's go right. ahead. <laughs> and so they had two people. 
that uh, were found during an audit who had not been trained. And they said, well, but we only have two people to train. The organization says we can't do it until we have at least eight. So, you know, we have a, a, a procedure that says people have to be trained, but we have a policy that says you can't do it until you have eight people. So, uh, you know, in that case, they ended up training or changing the training process, obviously. But Good. so you find these all all over the place as, as policies, incentive systems, resource allocation is the other one. Hmm. I, I saw an article the other day. I didn't read it, but it basically got into the uh, issue of management very often does not actually understand how many different projects are underway within hmm. their organization. Right. And if you don't know how many projects are underway, then how do you know whether or not you've actually allocated sufficient resource mm. to staff each of those projects effectively? Sure. And so resource allocation is very often done well within a single, let's say, department or area or project. But when you look across the organization, very often I find that there's not a an overall resource management process that is used. Mm. Interesting. You know, Duke, this is, this, you, you, you just mentioned some great ideas, some great advice, I guess you could say, for those, those of us who are in leadership positions. Um, unfortunately, at lower levels of the organization, uh, reliability and quality engineers sometimes have a lot of trouble getting the attention of the key decision makers and leaders. Can, do you have any advice for those folks? How, how can people at, at the, the lower levels of the organization, you know, who are not in, uh, in uh, leadership positions, how, how, can they, how can they improve their effectiveness? Um, I, I guess I'll come, from, uh, I'll come at that from two different angles. Mm-hmm. Number one, uh, don't be myopic. Hmm. Uh, I have a, I know you're not supposed to quote yourself probably, but uh, <laughs> I came up with a, with a quote several years ago that I try to use at every opportunity. And it's instead of thinking yourself as a quality professional who happens to work in a business, hmm. think about yourself as a business professional who happens to work in quality. Ah. That is, make sure you understand the larger context in which you're operating, that the organization yes. is there to make money, not just to operate a quality department or a quality system. Right. So if we have on our, our business hat, then we are more likely to be able to communicate with managers in a way that will uh, help them understand where we're coming from. And sure. we're able to relate what we're talking about to strategy and, and so on. The other is to remember that uh, it's it's amazing how much change you can create regardless of where you are in an organization hmm. if you use the right uh, techniques. That is, you know, you can be a bull in a china shop if you want, but that creates a lot of damage. Sure. So instead, if we sort of identify small opportunities for change, things over which we have control, for example, and we make that change and we make sure that certain people are aware of those or involved in those, then that can very often spread. Uh, you know, if you've ever studied chaos theory, you've probably heard about the, the butterfly flapping sure. its wings in Brazil or wherever it is, and you end up with a hurricane, you know, somewhere else. Right. And so the idea is, as a matter of fact, here's an analogy I haven't used in a long time. If you want to change an organization, there's two ways to do it. One is think about a major forest fire 
where you go out on a windy day and you start a fire and the wind is behind your back and it picks it up and whoosh, you know, it's, it's gone. Now, I'm not recommending that obviously, but think about that is when, when the wind is at your back, it's relatively easy to create change. Right. But a lot of us, as you're saying, uh, don't have the wind at our back. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say, if you want to start a forest fire, it's not a windy day. What you need to do is go out and start a lot of little fires. Hmm. Some of those will go out, but if a few of those uh, are successful and take off and then they start to join together, it's amazing what you can end up with uh, you know, at the end of the day. So instead of trying to uh, change the whole, uh, you know, the whole plan, so to speak, change little pieces uh, at a time. That's great advice. Duke, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Hey, I'm uh, glad to do it. And, uh, you know, give me an audience and, <laughs> and I'm ready. My, my wife calls me a closet extrovert. I'm actually uh, a very strong introvert because at the end of the day, I just want to sit down in a nice quiet area and think things through and decide what I'm going to do the next day and so on. Well, but, uh, I appreciate I found, it. Uh, you know, if you put me in front of a crowd, uh, you know, I'll light up. So it's great mm -hmm. having the conversation with you. And uh, thanks for uh, helping to helping me to review some things that probably is useful for me to go back and think about uh, as I go forward. You're very welcome, Duke. That was Duke Oaks, knowledge architect, quality management consultant, author, and educator. For more information about Duke and his work, please visit www.aplomet, that's A-P-L-O-M-E-T dot com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for joining us.